For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is On The Mark, and I am pleased to be joined by the Hall of Famer. I'm going to go as far as to say one of my heroes, Nancy Lieberman, with us, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And Nancy, I think I, we got to start like at the start for you, where which I believe, call me crazy, is, is Rucker Park and you taking the A-train at night as a young girl to go play with boys, African-Americans, the whole thing, and having the confidence to do that and the want to do that. I know you've talked about it a ton throughout a zillion interviews you've done, but I'm kind of like looking for a story that maybe isn't out there, just going up on, the, on that court and gaining confidence and what, was, what, that, what that was like for you. Well, I will say this. I just came back on uh, last night, actually. I was up in New York. It was the 50-year anniversary of Rutgers Park and their program, Each One, Teach One, which is a mentorship program, um, it saved my life. I mean, being over to get up there and go in the hood and at 11, 12, 13, you know, 14, 15 years old, just it was such a safe place for me, Rucker Park, because nobody profiled me, nobody made fun of me. They knew I was white, by the way. <laughs> they knew that I was a girl, by the way. And they just cared that's all that mattered was street cred. Can you play or can you not play? And those guys took me under their wing. And when we finished playing, they would ride the, the train home. Uh, it was two trains to Far Rockaway. And, you know, I didn't know at the time my mom that not to be racist or judgmental or profile people. I mean, people would look at it like, Ms. Lieberman, why does Nancy have black kids in the house? And I would say they're my friends. And they were my friends and will always be my friends. And the color of our skin never matters. It just mattered that we loved each other 
and we protected each other. I'm not doing this interview without those guys, by the way. They changed my life. That's so awesome. And I'm wondering, because it sounds like when you got there, you were already good enough to play with them, which, you know, it's, that's kind of amazing in itself. Like, I, you know, you're, you're, as my understanding, you know, your parents divorced, your mom wasn't, uh, you know, out there on the court with you all day long. I mean, how did you even get to be good enough to, to compete at that level where they would accept you? Well, you know, I started playing basketball, I should say sports, uh, early on. So I played football, baseball, basketball. Basketball is my best sport. Oh, wow. Uh, I started playing basketball at around nine years old and following, you know, the Knicks and Willis Reed and Walt Frazier and Dr. J. And I had heard that the best players in the world played at Rucker Park in Harlem. So I would tell my mom, you know, after playing in, in the schoolyard near me, I told her one day that I'm going to go to the park, which was a block away. And when I didn't come home after dark, she, she didn't know where I was. And finally I came home and she goes, I went to the park and I went looking for you. I said, well, I wasn't at that park. I was at Rucker Park. And she says, excuse me? I said, I went to Harlem. And she was like, Nancy, do you not understand how dangerous it is? And I was like, Mom, I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I just wanted to play. <laughs> and she just looked at me like, you're an idiot. And what I found out at Rucker Park, this is really phenomenal. These guys were bigger, stronger, quicker. Obviously, I was only 11, 12 years old. But the way you got into the first game at Rucker, you had to make your foul shot. So, you know, it was like, like the first five. So I would go home and I would shoot foul shots. I mean, until I could make my foul shot, it would guarantee me I could get into the first game at Rucker. So if you got in the first game and you won, you played in the second game. And then if you won that game, you came off the court. But you would at least be guaranteed one or two games. So that was my strategy. I always got in the first game at Rucker. That's amazing. So they do they always start at the same time? Because I'm imagining like the way I would envision something like that. Guys know each other. This is my five. You've got your five, and you're never getting picked. But that's an actual like credible way of going about who's on the court. Yeah. Now your five friends could shoot five in a row. You know, I could shoot. You could shoot. But if, if you don't make your shot, and I do, then you're not going to play. So yeah. you could have that strategy, but. You know, I was I was very observant of, you know, and I guess it was weird of being at such a young age, but I knew everybody was, was better than me, and I just, I needed to play. And that was a guaranteed way to play, make your foul shot. And it didn't matter how big you are or how much you could dunk or how hard you could dunk. It, you know, if you couldn't hit your foul shot, you had to sit. Where would you say that the drive came to be the best? To I want to go play against the best. I want to go play college hoop. I want to be in the Olympics. I'm going to play in the USBL with men. I mean, where, where did this start to develop? Quite frankly, you never think like that. When you play sports, you play because it's A, it's fun. B, you're with your friends and you're just having a good time. And those are the purest reasons to play sports. Mm -hmm. And I played for that reason, but I also played because I was a poor kid from New York. I had no father. I had no food. I had no electricity. I had no heat. 
I, we were one grandparent away from food stamps, and I was desperate to be somebody. I, I got tired of being called stupid and dumb, and I'd never make anything of myself. Why are you hanging out with black people? And it really bothered me that I was fighting the fight. You know, in the 70s, there was no Title IX, there was no WNBA, there was no gender equity. But playing sports made me feel good about myself. It just, people weren't used to seeing a girl playing with guys. But it, it, it really made me who I am and the toughness that you have to have in those situations. And the, the defining moment for me at like 10 years old I'm walking in the kitchen, and I see this man on TV, and he says he's the greatest of all time, and he beat Joe Frazier like he beat George Foreman, like he beat Sonny Liston back in 1964. He is the greatest of all times. And I'm like, I want to be the greatest of all times. <laughs> and the man was Muhammad Ali. And I went in the kitchen, and I looked at my mother, and you got, I mean, you got to picture this little redheaded, skinny kid going, I'm going to be the greatest of all times. I'm going to knock you out. She goes, I am your mother. I'm going to knock you out four rounds. And she goes, Nancy, why are you talking like that? And I'm like, I don't know, but I'm going to be the greatest, and you're going to have to get used to it. I mean, I was just a hot mess. I and... This, this man just changed my life because he gave me something to believe in. And I didn't even know him, but he was my eyes and passion. You know, and a couple of years later, I ended up making the Olympic team in high school because he taught me to believe. He taught me to love me when I didn't love me. You know, I was, I was checking out your Twitter, Nancy. It's at Nancy Lieberman, very easy to follow. And it's just, you know, you're talking about Muhammad. I think it's, it's on your heart. You just visited uh, the Cave Hill Cemetery where Muhammad was laid to rest. And, I mean, there, there's, I, I would say, the greatest athlete, the, the greatest influencer for humanity of all time. And, uh, and you're talking about it right now, and there's a great picture there. And you saying, you know, how much it, it meant to you to be there. So, I mean, this is a guy that... Uh, Obviously, did did he instilled the confidence in you? You loved watching him, all of it. I mean, Muhammad was a special person for you. He was uh, to the day he died. I mean, he promised me at nineteen when we met for the first time. You know, you never know why somebody chooses you, but he chose me to be in his life, and he promised me that there would never be a day that he wasn't a part of my life. And that was nineteen seventy nine. Um, until the funeral. And, you know, when I got the job coaching with the Sacramento Kings, the Ali's were the second people I called. And Lonnie's like, we're coming to see you coach. And I was like, what? He goes, he wants to come see you. And eight months before he died, he came to the arena and he took pictures with me and, you know, my guys. And he just never let me down. And, you know, we opened that dream court, uh, that's the second one we've opened for the Ali's. And uh, Lonnie called me in the morning and she said, honey, go see Muhammad. I know he wants to see you. And I got chills when she said that to me. And I asked the uh, detectives when the uh, 
you know, the court was open and we were done. I said, can I go uh, to Cave Hill? And they had it all set up for me to, to go see him. But she used to say that to me all the time. Like, I'd call up and say, hey, I'm in Phoenix. And she'd say, honey, he, can you come to the house? He wants to see you. I mean, she must have said it 30 times to me. And she never once said no. It was always, he can't wait to see you. He's waiting on you. And for me to go there yesterday, it was, man, I, I, it's hard to describe this wanting to just tell him how much I, I loved him and I knew how proud he was of me because he championed everything I did. So, I mean, how many people get to say Muhammad Ali, you know, was in their life in such a profound way? Not many. Not many at all. Uh, I mean, what was he like? I'm just curious. As, as a guy, like, you know, we all see the clips and the bravado and, and the heart and all that. But behind the scenes, what would you say he was like? The first time I met him, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't believe that my hero was in the same room with me. And he just had this amazing sense of understanding the moment. He knew people were kind of like paralyzed around him. But he, it's like I said yesterday when I was speaking, nobody loved Muhammad Ali more than Muhammad Ali. <laughs> he, he would literally get out of his car while they were driving down a street and he, and he would get out of the car and he would hug strangers. He would go up to the you know, what you would call the common people. That's why he was the people's champ. He just loved people and he wanted to be accessible. And I know why today and always I've never been bigger than the show. I'm not interested in entourages and acting like I'm really important. I just want to be amongst the people. I want to be around people. You know, I want to show my love, my kindness. Um, he used to tell me, you know, be a giver, not a taker. And he taught me to respect everybody but fear nobody. There were just so many things. Okay, I remember I was 19 and I'm sitting in his room the night I met him at the plaza with my mother and my best buddy, uh, Barbara. Uh, we went to high school together. And Muhammad was teaching me. He kept saying, you're the future. You're going to be the future. People are going to try to tear you down, but you have to be strong. And I was like, what? You know, a typical <laughs> kid. And he's like, Nancy, you're going to be able to bridge the gap between white and blacks. And I was like, what do you mean? And he says, you're, you're, you're going to have to keep doing what you're doing and going into Rucker and, and loving on black people. He's, he said, you know, think about this for my people. They've been told that the day is good and beautiful and the night is scary and dark because it's black. The, 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 good, um, the good cowboy wears the helmet. The black cowboy wears the black hat, the bad cowboy. He goes, there's so many things subliminal that people have. It, it's kind of been put in the head of, of African-Americans that they're not just as good, you know, they're not worthy. And that's not true. It's not true. I mean, 
I see some of the most incredible African-American people in business and sports who were just housewives, who were doctors, lawyers. There has to be a quality. We have to have understanding and love with each other. And he was like, I don't want a black person to be mad at you because you're white. I don't want a black person to be mad at me because I'm white. And I don't want a white person to be mad at me because I have great black friends. Sorry, this is just how it is with me, my family, my son. We're we're for everybody. You know, we're we're Americans. We we care about people and we want to help people. And Muhammad taught me that. Every step of the way he taught me that. And I'm I am so grateful to have had him in my life. I mean, he helped make me strong and powerful, and I'm not afraid to coach in the NBA. I'm not afraid to go to Rucker Park. I'm not afraid to say that I might, you know, love or care about this person who looks different than me. That was his influence, and he was so generous. I'll tell you this story. He's in the hospital, you know, the Parkinson Hospital in Phoenix, the Muhammad Ali wing. And he asked the doctors a couple of years ago, he goes, you know, I get the best treatment. I, I get the best doctors. And he said to the group of doctors, I need you to do me a favor. I want you to give patients who can't afford treatment. I want you to give them the same treatment and medicine you give me and not charge them. And the doctors were like, uh, Muhammad, we can't do this. He goes, yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can do this for me. And there's a group of people at the hospital now who get treatment for free. Muhammad used to get sneakers from his, the sneaker company he was with. And he says, I'll do the deal, but you have to give sneakers to everybody that gets treatment, that can't afford it, including the doctors, the orderlies, uh, the maintenance people. That's how Muhammad was. It's no mistake that I am the way I am. The greatest. I, I, I really appreciate you sharing. And, I mean, it's, an, it's a natural lead into – I know you've got some uh, LeBron James signed stuff in your, your Nancy Lieberman Hall of Fame uh, sports room. And here's a guy who – obviously the best player in the game, but also one of the few athletes speaking out off the court – with the craziness that's going on in our society right now. I mean, it's got to hurt your heart to see what's going on. I, I would assume that, uh, oh right? I mean, I, I would assume that uh, you got a lot of respect for what LeBron's doing. I, you know, I dig him. I dig anybody who cares, who's successful. He gives. He's a great father. He's a great husband. He's a good humanitarian. But you want to know who his role model is? One of his role models? One of his... You know, guys who guide him? Go ahead. Warren Buffett. Yeah. Warren Buffett. I mean, he he wants to be great at everything. If you want to be great, learn from people who are great. And, you know, what happened in Charlottesville is horrible. And it is deplorable. And there's no place for racism. There's no place for neo-Nazis. There's no place for that stuff in, in, in our society. No, that those are homegrown terrorists. And they can't do that to people. 
It's wrong. It's flat out wrong. It's it's amazing to me that we have to have the conversation even point that out, but apparently we do nowadays. Um, so, hey, uh, I just want to make sure we get it out there. You're working right now with the National Basketball Retired Players Association. You got, I mean, some of the greatest names, Dave DeBusher and Dave Bing, Archie Clark, Dave Cowens, the big O, Oscar Robertson, and then uh, there's Nancy Lieberman in there too. What, what, what does it mean for you to be a part of that group? When I was asked, this is my second term on the board. They had never had a female on the board about five years ago. And I remember Otis Birdsong and Rick Berry came to me and they're like, Nancy, it's time. It's time. We've never had a woman involved. It's been like a boys club. And I was like, I don't know. You know, I just, you know, I was on some boards and, you know, we're all busy. And I think it was Rick and Otis. They're like, Nancy, this is bigger than you, bigger than us. It's time. And what I'll say about the NBA, what I'll say about the Players Association and the NBRPA is we're a group that is the leader in inclusion and non-discrimination and non-racism and non-sexism. And we have to be open-minded to everybody. And Adam Silver has led the way. And the PA, you know, Michelle Roberts is absolutely phenomenal, brilliant, bright. You know, they got that collective bargaining agreement done in, you know, nobody's business because they saw that we have to work together. The NBRPA is doing incredible programs in communities, uh, testing for, for health and heart screening and uh, eyes and ears and the, the toughest thing being an athlete is that you're never by yourself. When you're on a team, you're traveling with that team, you're eating with that team. Sometimes in business, you know, you go home and you see your wife and kids and whatnot. When you're on a team, your team is your family. I mean, you've heard that for years. And then you retire. And then that's why people don't want to retire because we don't want to lose sitting in the locker room and talking to each other and telling stories. And, you know, you've been in the foxhole with someone for so long. And the, the NBRPA allows you to stay connected to the great players of the game. They allow you to feel like you're still a part of something. It, it can be lonely. When your career's over and, and the fans stop cheering for you, it can be really lonely and depressing because we're in a world that sometimes isn't real. You know, fandom is amazing, but when you're no longer the flavor of the month, it's just, it's just how life happens and it can be really difficult to navigate. The RPA, I mean, we're here for, for former NBA players, WNBA players, Harlem Globetrotters. We have programs on financial literacy, uh, like I mentioned, health. We have, you know, clinics. We do community things. Uh, we have chapters around the country where former players, you know, come together and, and, and try to be impactful in their communities. It's, it's really big stuff, and we take it seriously, uh, the support that, that we get, you know, from the NBA and, and the PA. Well, and you've got a very s small comparative play, uh, amount of players 
that didn't make the money or anywhere close to the money that the players are making today. And, you know, with all the dough that's going on and, you know, 15th guys on teams getting $5 million a year, I would think the NBA would like to, you know, have some some revenue share or whatever it's going to be, lump a, a certain percentage off just to help out the retired players who are in their 60s and 70s and, and never made that type of dough. And maybe they're, they're eating okay, but could, you know, just a little bit more could be given. I mean, does that, does that ring true to you? It does. It does. I, I compliment today's players for caring. Um, but, we, we, you know, we have to, you know, pass it forward, and we also have to pass it back. And today's players, first of all, let me say this. It's not their fault that they're all multimillionaires. No, and so just because... Yeah, it's to their credit. They deserve it. They, they're, they're in the most exclusive country club. I didn't mean it to come off like that, but there's just so much dough that I think we could take care of them. I'm sorry, go ahead. So I'm, I'm proud of today's players, whether it's the WNBA or, you know, the, the NBA, that they're making a lot of money. It's generational wealth. And they're doing something that's very impactful. What the league and the players have done, you know, in the, the partnerships that we have, is they want to help players that started it. They do get it. They're not immune to it. And if young players don't get it at first, you know, there's enough people who they respect that will tell them, about the history of the game, and we're all connected by it. I mean, in 25 years, I'll tell you a story. This is phenomenal. Um, when I, I think I was pre- when I was president of the Women's Sports Foundation, we were honoring women, and I, I believe it was Jackie Joyner was getting an award, and Doug Flutie was presenting the award, and he tells this story about. You remember when uh, Gatorade had that commercial, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, with yep. Mia Hamm and Michael Jordan? Yep, loved it. It was a great one. Okay. So Michael had retired, and Doug Flutie's little daughter, I think her name was Alexa, if memory serves me, she, she says, Daddy, who's the man in the picture with Mia? <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Who would ever imagine that little kids wouldn't know who Michael Jordan is, but they would know who Mia Hamm is? There's a generation that doesn't know who Michael Jordan is. There's a generation that doesn't know who Nancy Lieberman is or, you know, some of those great players. This gives us a chance to say to today's players, baby, it's going to happen. In 25 years, they're not going to know who LeBron is or Kobe because there's going to be a new superstar out there so we really have to be humble and care about the totality of our game and let's help the people that started it I mean I went to Dave Bing's basketball camp when I was 14 years old that's why I have my camps because it was Dave Bing all pro basketball camp up in the Poconos and I got to go and so here I am, and I've known Dave Bing since I was 14. Um, I mean, just think about Dave Cowens or Archie Clark. I mean, Dave DeBusher, who's no longer with us. And of course, like with Muhammad, I get to say, 
Oscar Robertson's been my friend, and I love him. And I have such reverence for these amazing guys that care about the future of the game, but also care about the history of the game for both men and women and globetrotters, I might add. See, when we're talking history of the game, there's I, I don't know if, if it's going to come in time here, but at some point there's going to be the first women's head coach in the NBA. You were the first in the WNBA. You played with men. Like, Nancy, it should be you. I, I, what, do you what do you think about that? I, I don't ever worry about stuff like that. I'm just happy that the Kings gave me an opportunity. Um, I just look forward to more women getting an opportunity in the NBA. And I, I'm proud of Becky and what she's done. We're not in a race. In time, it will happen, and it might not be me. It's okay. It's uh, I've had such an amazing life for someone who could have, you know, I could have been a victim of my circumstances growing up in New York, and I'm a victor. I have no reason to ever flinch when somebody says, well, what happens if you're not the first woman coach and, you know, head coach? No worries. Um, first of all, the guy who really deserves the credit for women in the NBA is Donnie Nelson with mm -hmm. the Mavs, their president, GM. Donnie, when he hired me in 2010 to be the first female head coach of a D-League team, Donnie changed the world and the thinking within the NBA. Because I contend that the, the Kings, uh, Coach Popovich, they would never have thought about it if Donnie Nelson didn't put two feet in. And Donnie made you feel like you could, you know, knock down a wall. Um, and we made the playoffs, and it, it was pretty unbelievable. And, and Donnie doesn't get enough credit, to be quite honest. He was the one who put the, the seed in everybody's head and gave me a chance. I'm very grateful. We all should be grateful to Donnie Nelson. Yeah, uh, no doubt, no doubt. Took a took a huge chance, and it was. I was watching that today too, and just uh, saw the best man for the job was, was was you, and he had the courage to go ahead and do it. I, I want to ask you just because uh, I I don't quite understand it, and I think people can. It's just interesting your whole story. Where in, in 1980 you could have played in the Olympics, but you chose not to. What what was what was the reason behind that? Because uh, that took. I mean, you're, you're giving up an opportunity to play in the Olympics. No, there was no opportunity. Um, we had just finished our winning our second national championship at Old Dominion. I go straight to Colorado Springs, you know, to the Olympic uh, training center. You know, I make the Olympic team. And I'm captain of the team. You know, you got to remember in 76, I was in high school. And right. in 80, it was in, like my moment where I, I you know, I could shine as a, a, a leader for the team, we, we're training, and then, you know, they bring us into a room in Colorado Springs, and all the athletes are sitting in this room, and they turn the TV on, and Jimmy Carter, he says, we, uh, we're, you know, in, in response to the Russians invading Afghanistan, the United States will not send our Olympic teams uh, to Moscow. I mean, if you could see a room of deflated athletes from all sports, it was, it was horrible. Yeah. I was a kid. I was no longer on scholarship. 
I was poor. I didn't know where I was going to live, what I was going to do. And we were not going to the Olympics. What the U.S. team did is we were going to go to a pre-Olympic tournament in Romania. And I declined to go on the trip to Romania because I needed to go home. I needed to figure out what the next step of my life was going to be. And we were just going to Romania just to to play four games. And I was, I have to be honest with you, like I didn't have it in my heart. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, that's why I left. And I talked to my coaches. I talked to Pat Summit. I talked to my roommate, Ann Donovan. I told him exactly. I mean, to do this, you got to be on such a high mental level. And women's basketball, you know, had been kind of on my back for those three years in college at Old Dominion. I think we, we you know, we were 104 and six my, my last three years. And, you know, with the championships and the NIT and, I was exhausted. I mean, I was being torn in a hundred directions. And the reality is I had nothing. I, I, I didn't know where I was going to live until, you know, I, in, in June was, uh, was drafted by the Dallas Diamonds. But I had no clue what I was going to do, where I was going to live, how I was going to pay bills. And I needed to get home and figure that out if we weren't going to the Olympics. When you think about that and the terror that I'm hearing from there to where it's at today, not that, uh, you know, you're not making the same money in the WNBA, they're making the NBA, but it's just a different, the opportunities are so much greater now. It, it's got to it's gotta warm your heart to see what's happened and, and where it's going from here, too. Oh, I'm thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. I mean, I'm such a fan of the WNBA and the game is in, in just amazing hands with Maya Moore and... You know, Diana Trossi might be the greatest player I've ever seen, greatest winner I've ever seen, her and Maya. Yeah. You know, you got Brittany Grant, you got Della Don, you got, you know, Sue Bird will be a Hall of Famer. Um, there's so many great players in the league right now. And I, I want them to crush it. I want them to make a great living. And we have fantastic gatekeepers. We continue to, to grow the game. I mean, we have now the Dallas Wings here in um, in Arlington, Texas, and I'm a season ticket holder, and I go to the games. They were so cool. They retired my number um, last in June. I mean, we have to support each other. It's awesome. Nancy, I said I talked to you for 15 minutes. We're at over a half an hour here, so I'll – uh, we, we can wrap it up, but congratulations uh, with the work with the with the retired players. It's awesome, and and really everything you've done. And I didn't even touch on a million things here, but uh, I appreciate you taking time, and it was really great to speak with you and and, and sharing. I, I really appreciate the Muhammad stuff too. That was awesome. Well, thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to to going to our retreat and sharing uh, some more ideas about how you know we can help each other in the future. So thank you. All the best. Thank you.
When you need to work quickly and confidently across different apps and platforms, consistent quality communication is key. Whether you're writing documents, emails, or presentations, you need Grammarly. It's an AI writing partner that helps you get your work done faster with better writing. It's always there to help because it works where you work across 500,000 apps and websites so you can get more done no matter where you're writing. Grammarly is the gold standard of responsible AI, trusted by millions of professionals for 15 years. It gives you personalized writing suggestions based on your audience, goals, and context, plus tone suggestions to help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. 96% of users agree Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Grammarly. Easier said, done. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.